Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Laura Friedman and I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is June 8th, 2021, and it is my pleasure to have with me today my friend Omar Badar. Omar is a Palestinian American political analyst based in Washington, D.C., and a member of the National Policy Council of the Arab American Institute. Previously, he served as the deputy director of the Arab American Institute, executive director of the Arab American, sorry, American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee of Massachusetts, and he was a digital producer and presenter with Al Jazeera's The Stream. His appearances in the media include BBC, MSNBC, Al Jazeera, and Sky News, among other outlets. So we are thrilled to have you with us here today, Omar. I've actually been trying to get you on the podcast for a while, and I know you're really busy. So thank you for agreeing to do this with us today. It's really always good to be with you, and I'm glad we're having this conversation. Thanks, Laura. What, you, you may not be so glad when you hear all the long questions that I'm going to yeah. ask you to answer. So I'm, <laughs> I'm going to just dive right in. And, and you know, these are, these are interesting times, you know, the beware of interesting times. What is it like today being Palestinian in Washington, D.C., whether we're talking about the policy world, the think tank world, in the media? And I'm asking this thinking about both how much higher profile Palestinian voices have been of late, great, but also thinking of the attacks that we've seen on Palestinian Americans and Arab Americans in government, um, people that we both know who were brought on by the Biden team and just faced horrible attacks. And I'm also thinking of the recent firing by AP of a young reporter, who, by the way, isn't Palestinian. She's actually a Jewish American um, because of her pro-Palestinian activism when she was in college. It, it almost feels like Palestinian voices and the Palestinian issue are simultaneously becoming more accepted in the mainstream discourse. Um, but at the same time, there is this counter pressure. So to what extent do you think there has been any change with respect to Palestinians in the public sector, media, and policy world? That's a, that is a big question. So, you know, to be Palestinian is supposed to be an ethnic identity um, or national origin, but living in DC, being Palestinian feels like it's some kind of political identity. And it's something actually that my wife mentions also. Um, she works in, in policy making circles and with Congress and elsewhere. And whenever she's asked, oh, you have a son, what's his name? Oh, where's your husband from? That kind of thing. It's always, she says she feels like she's making some kind of, expressing some kind of political opinion in saying my husband is Palestinian. That's what it feels like. And it's not difficult to see why. You know, when you think of the fact that Congress on both sides of the aisle, overwhelmingly back in the 90s, was pushing for the Jerusalem Embassy Act in which um, they want the embassy to be moved and they want Jerusalem to be recognized as Israel's capital and insisting that Jerusalem as an undivided capital to Israel. We are effectively talking about a political environment in which most of Congress is endorsing occupation, Israeli occupation of Palestinian land, which entails ethnic cleansing and military dictatorship and discriminatory policies and all of that. That's the political consensus that exists in Washington right now. And obviously, I think there have been there has been quite a bit of progress that is made recently, as you alluded to, in terms of public discourse and, and more media voices. But ultimately, there is that double standard that I think is very telling. In that you mentioned a Jewish, you know, Jewish uh, reporter who used to be once an activist for Palestinian rights being fired from AP, and you can think of somebody like Mark Lamont Hill, who was also pushed out of CNN for saying free Palestine. But then on the other side of that, you have people who are formerly APAC lobbyists 
working in media. You have people who have once served in the Israeli military as occupation troops themselves working in mainstream American media and they have mainstream platforms and no, it doesn't occur to anyone to question whether that's appropriate or not. So it is an anti-Palestinian climate. It's an anti-Palestinian um, political environment in which to be Palestinian is to be suspect. And I think even though we're beginning to see that change to some extent, it's still a very long way. We're still a very long way from normalizing being, being Palestinian in this space. It just, it, it definitely feels a little bit alienating. The last part you're saying, it's, 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 Something I mean, a lot of us noticed when I think it was Washington Post, um, the Washington Post correspondent who covered Israel and Palestine for years uh, left and became a spokesperson for the, uh, the Israeli mission to the UN. I mean, I, I personally don't think that necessarily someone's personal views about Israel-Palestine, just because you are, you know, someone who cares about Israel or, or especially just because you're Jewish means you aren't someone who can be objective, but it's fascinating because you don't get that same assumption if you're Palestinian, which flows into my next question, which is uh, to what extent are Palestinians who are engaged in media, in think tanks, or particularly in government, in effect required to disassociate themselves with Palestinian identity, let alone Palestinian activism, or even disavow their past activism. And here I'm thinking about, like, I know, and you and I both know Palestinians working probably in every agency in the US government and in Congress. And, and you think of them as, you know, friends and you, you hope that, you know, they're okay and they're not getting attacked, but none of them are, are engaged on Israel-Palestine issues. And it's almost yeah. unimaginable that they would be. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Look, I'm one of the few lucky ones where I feel like I did not have to hide my activist history. I mean, I've, I've just dove headfirst into my political activism on Palestine and I've made an entire career of it. I've been one of the few lucky ones who's able to do that. Um, I work for a wonderful organization in which I can fully be myself. And it's, it's not, I've not put myself in an environment in which I have to hold some of this back, but I can see how other people who tried to pursue this from a different angle have absolutely had to do this. I mean, I think of um, one person in particular that comes to mind, Rima Dodin, who was tapped by Joe Biden to work in the White House, I think as Deputy Director of Legislative Affairs or something like that. And she isn't active on the issue of Palestine right now, publicly at least. Um, and people immediately went into her activist past digging for something that they could use against her. And the fact is she, there was nothing to use against her. Her activism was perfectly sensible, mainstream, measured, and yet things were made up about what she had said in an effort to take her down. And it was just simply a smear. It was not based on anything she had actually said. And that tells you that simply her Palestinian identity was viewed as a threat. And it was a reason to try to push her to be excluded. That's, that's, that's the environment right now. And it's, it's extremely troubling. Um, you know, you mentioned, obviously, nobody should be excluded based on, no, nobody can be assumed to not be objective simply because of their identity, of course. Everybody has biases. Every single person in the world has biases. They come from a particular perspective. We're all shaped by our experiences, by how we've grown up, by the environments that the people we've surrounded ourselves with. And it's only a question of, do we acknowledge everybody's biases equally? And do we give everybody an opportunity to serve, publicly serve? Or do you make an exception for just Palestinians and say that their biases matter more than anybody else's and therefore they have to be excluded? Um, that's, that's the reality that we still live in. And I think it's, it's still going to take a very long time before we get to the point to where this is normalized enough 
that we can just really live our lives as Palestinian Americans in the way that everybody else is an American of varying, you know, backgrounds and experiences and biases and all of that. As a follow-up to that, I'm, I'm interested, you deal a lot, obviously, with media. I saw a lot of stuff, you know, the sort of, it was almost like the Me Too, you know, people coming out with their stories from uh, Palestinian um, experts um, and activists, um, particularly over the past month or so when there's been so much attention saying that, you know, someone asked me for an interview and then said, oh, we can't use it because you're Palestinian, so you're not considered objective. And it's like, but I'm the expert and I'm here on the ground seeing it, you know, but you would ask an Israeli for their opinion. There is a sense of people more and more coming out and, and calling out the sense that, you know, you can, you can have the Palestinians point you to the stories, but you have to have someone objective tell the story because Palestinians can't be trusted. What, do you have any thoughts on that? No, that's, that's exactly right. And, you know, I've experienced it many, many times myself directly. I've, um, when I was writing for my school newspaper back when I was going to college down in Memphis, University of Memphis, I was specifically asked to stop mentioning Israel in the columns that I was writing. And, you know, this is like my first run in with censorship and it becomes a question of, is it worth continuing to have a column for the sake of talking about everything else that was happening at the time? The Iraq war was still somewhat fresh then or whether you give all of that up to take a principled stance of saying, I will not accept being told what I can talk about and what I can't talk about. Um, I ultimately held onto the column and found ways to try to inject this as subtly as possible, but it was a constant back and forth for me. Um, you know, more recently even um, with another major mainstream publication in the United States, I was asked to write a column, wrote it, sent it in, and then for whatever reason, it was like, oh, sorry, we decided that we changed our mind and we don't think we're going to run with this without really an adequate explanation. I think so many Palestinians have these experiences all the time. Um, in addition to talks being canceled under pressure, and it's never straightforward. Nobody ever tells you, you know, we've come under X, Y, Z pressure and, you know, we want you, you're going to be politically excluded. Obviously, everybody does it under the pretense that there's some other reason why Palestinian voices have to be excluded, but it's, it's really a real problem. I mean, it's a point, we've gotten to a point culturally right now where we know not to do manals. We know not to do a panel in which there are no women present. And it's something that really stands out when you're on a panel and it's four men and you say, what's going on here? And, you know, made it a habit to always call that out when it happens. So where is, why isn't there a woman on a panel? In a way that right now you constantly have policy conversations about Israel and Palestine in which there is not a single Palestinian voice. And that is normalized to a great degree. And it's been great watching allies stand up to Palestinians, but it's a fairly recent phenomenon where this is happening. So it really, um, you know, I think it certainly says a lot about the fact that Palestinians are viewed as people who cannot speak on the issue that we know the most about. Ultimately, even when you look at the Israeli elections and Israeli leaders, you know, who's in and who's out, the primary impacted party in all of this are Palestinians. Israelis, Israeli Jews in particular, enjoy you know, a measure of democracy, really. They vote for the government that, um, that actually rules them. They can move around the land somewhat freely. I mean, there's, there's a great discrepancy in terms of the impact on Palestinian lives based on which Israeli leader takes control. And for Palestinians, it is direct occupation and apartheid. And even though we are the impacted party by Israeli elections, we are ruled without having a voice. The media compounds that by stripping us of the ability to even talk about it. It's not enough that Palestinians do not have the ability to weigh in politically on the situations that they live under, but they don't have the ability to commentate on it um, in, in media coverage of, of the situation there. That's, that's really a, a serious problem. Yeah, so I wanna 
segue from that into what is, I think, sort of a more positive story right now, which is that clearly Palestine has broken through somewhat into the public consciousness and the public discourse um, in recent in new ways in recent times, recent years, and particularly this, this last round of, of, of violence. We had, I mean, I'm thinking of the New York Times uh, piece with the, the children, which by the way, uh, Representative Joe Wilson, I think called that a, a slam against Israel or something. He made some statement yesterday in the hearing that to report on children's deaths um, is, is an attack on Israel. So you have this change for better, for, whether it's consistent enough, enough or big enough is, is setting that aside. What made it possible? I mean, Palestinians have been trying to break through for years and, and have people hear them. And in particular, what does it mean today for Palestine and Palestinian rights as an issue to be increasingly presented and understood through the prism of values rather than a prism as of, of the foreign policy prism where it's an isolated issue that seems far away? Mm -hmm. Look, the progress on this, I think, is has been tremendous and credit would have to go first and foremost to the Palestinian organizers, both on the ground in Palestine and in the United States in terms of doing the massive public education campaigns to try to clarify what is actually unfolding. And a lot of the allies who've worked within these movements in support um, of Palestinians. There have been obviously points, many of them, along the way that have, I think, been pivotal in, in amplifying this conversation. Jimmy Carter's book back you know, a decade and a half ago, Israel you know, talking about Palestine, peace, not apartheid injecting the word apartheid into discourse in a way that has become much more accepted today than it was back then. You have a book being written by mainstream American academics, including one in Harvard on the Israel lobby. There are these moments that help push things a little bit farther along, but it's primarily the work of grassroots activists, I think, who are doing tremendous work on this. Another part of it, I think, is also the opening up of the American Jewish community on the issue of Palestine. There was a time when APAC acted as if it spoke for the American Jewish community, and that's clearly no longer the case. Between a centrist organization like J Street and more progressive organizations like If Not Now and, and Jewish Voice for Peace and others, this monopoly on the idea that to be pro-Israel is to be in support of the American Jewish community is just no longer the case. Now you have many leading American Jewish voices, including Peter Beinart and your voice as well. Um, who are talking about the fact that you can advocate for a more just and fair American foreign policy. You can talk about the importance of Palestinian human rights and not be considered to be um, you know, standing in, an op in opposition to the American Jewish community. I think that's an incredibly important development. And the most recent one would have to be the growth of the Black Lives Matter under the Trump administration. Trump administration was an incredibly racist, openly racist administration that was in alliance with the Israeli government and had fully endorsed Israel's annexation, I mean, it's already existing, obviously, on the ground um, in terms of entrenching occupations through settlement expansion and infrastructure. But Trump had a full endorsement of Israel's war on Palestinians, and people who opposed Trump's racism domestically in the United States took note of that connection, and that connection became much more obvious, that you've seen a massive explosion in Black Palestine solidarity. Um, in, in recent years around the Black Lives Matter movement talks about the issue of Palestine. Palestinian activists fighting against Israeli occupation on the ground talk about uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and have a mural on Israel's apartheid wall depicting George Floyd. That connection, I think, has also been absolutely instrumental. And it's funny when you watch shows like Bill Maher's show on HBO. Um, I just watched the, caught this last episode where it was one of his deep frustrations as somebody who essentially it has a regressive mindset when it comes to Palestine and Israel. 
The thing he was most upset about is particularly this connection between the racial justice struggle in the United States and the Palestinian struggle against Israeli apartheid. It was deeply frustrating. And I think that tells you something about where discourse is, is that people are beginning to get it. You know, you look at opinion polls, you see that young people and more diverse communities are much more in solidarity with Palestinians and, and, and recognize their rights and understand that America's role towards Palestine and Israel has not been a positive one and that it fundamentally needs to change. Thanks. That, that's great. I want to use this as a moment to give a shout out to a podcast I did last week with um, Professor Maha Nassar, who went into much greater detail. And I actually would like to sit with her again and learn much more about the history of Black Palestinian um, cooperation and, 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 and really the way that the evolution of Palestinian thought, which goes much, much further back. It was, it was fascinating. Folks who haven't listened to that yet should, should take a listen. It's really good. Um, all right, so, so picking up on a couple of threads that we've, we've already gone through, let's zoom in again more on the media. So uh, looking, so recent media attention has, has related, related initially to the, the Sheikh Jarrah and Haram al-Sharif Temple Mount kerfuffle, which is not over obviously, and then more broadly on the Gaza Strip and the violence in the so-called mixed cities inside the Green Line. And, and that coverage has included um, significant and maybe even unprecedented, I don't know anyone who's done the counting, attention and, um, and, in, and inclusion of Palestinians and Palestinian voices and perspectives. Uh, so with that context in mind, but looking at the shifts we talked about earlier, for better or for worse, what do you see is changing today with respect to how Palestinian voices are treated by mainstream media outlets? And here I'm talking legacy media, which by which I mean TV news and, and newspapers. And to what do you attribute these changes, assuming you see changes, and, mm -hmm. and do you see this as a positive trend that's actually going to continue? So I definitely think there has been a, a massive positive change on this front. What happened in this particular Israeli assault on Gaza is unprecedented in terms of the number of celebrities who are speaking out, the number of members of Congress who are speaking out about it, and by extension, the presence of Palestinian voices in mainstream media coverage of this. I don't want to exaggerate the extent of the progress. I don't want to pretend that there is not a problem with media coverage of this anymore. Major problems still remain. An obvious one is lack of context. You always see coverage of events in Palestine and Israel unfolding without understanding, you know, the Sheikh Jarrah situation, for example, hardly a mention of the fact that East Jerusalem is occupied territory that Israel has no right to be ruling over that. And when you take the context out and all you see is clashes, people just don't understand that there is a relationship between an occupier and an occupied, an oppressor and an oppressed people. That dynamic ends up um, becoming invisible. And when it's invisible, it really affects how well people can actually understand what they're perceiving on their TV screens. Another aspect of it is the lack of equal weight to Palestinian lives and Israeli lives. I think that's a thing that has been a problem um, leading up to what happened in Gaza. You know, you've had video footage of Israeli soldiers breaking into Al-Aqsa, the holiest site for Muslims in Palestine, and brutalizing unarmed demonstrators. You know, they were being beaten sometimes with their handcuffs on them and they were still getting hit. And I can't help but imagine that had it been reversed, had this been armed Palestinian militants breaking into a Jewish place of worship and brutalizing you know, Jewish worshipers, Israelis, random unarmed Israelis, that footage would have been playing on a loop as breaking news from wall to wall. And it wasn't in this case. And I think there is a sense that Palestinians being brutalized is just you know, run of the mill. It's just what happens. And so it doesn't necessarily warrant the kind of coverage that it actually does. And the last thing that I've noticed that persists to be a problem and probably one of the most frustrating things for me 
is the chronology in terms of always, always, always depicting, depicting Israel's actions as a, retalia a retaliation to Palestinian violence. It's always Palestinians initiate an Israel response, even though that's belied by the reality on the ground. You know, even if you, even if you set aside the fact that Netanyahu led this escal escalation, if, if you set that aside completely, the status quo before anything happens is that Israel is an occupier in Gaza and in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. And that status quo of occupation entails a great deal of violence that Palestinians live under as, you know, on a daily basis. So that's really the initiating violence. The idea that Israel is responding or defending itself in this context is every bit as absurd as suggesting that an armed intruder who breaks into your home is defending themselves if violence breaks out. And yet there's, there isn't really a recognition of that. And there isn't a point of emphasis on the extent to which Israeli government actions inflame certain tensions and escalate certain situations. Whenever there is any kind of Palestinian violence, that's always the starting point that the media starts paying attention to. And then Israel has to respond. And we have a debate on, is the response proportionate or is it not? But it's really missing the fundamental reality that Palestinians are the ones who are occupied and who need to resist the situation that they're living under. All of that said, obviously, it's been tremendous to see that there has been space for Palestinian voices this time around on virtually every major network, obvious exclusions, Fox News and, and whatever else. But um, and yeah, the New York Times piece that ran highlighting the children that have been killed, both Israeli and Palestinian, it's simply a reality that the overwhelming majority of, of children who get killed are Palestinian given the imbalance of power. But it's, it really is very telling that people thought of that as something to be objected to. That Palestinians being humanized to an equal degree as Israelis was objectionable and taken as a reason for several prominent people to say they're canceling their New York Times subscriptions. The level of normalized anti-Palestinian racism that merely granting Palestinians equal space becomes something to object to, I think, is, is tells you something about the reigning media environment that existed that something like this can't even be controversial at all. And I suspect that progress will continue to happen. I think that once you let the genie out of the bottle, you can't put it back in. The truth is out there. There is much wider understanding of what's unfolding in Palestine, and there's going to be growing demands for more Palestinian voices and perspectives to be present. But obviously, this is going to be a fight. Forces on the other side of this are demanding something different. So I guess we'll see what happens. But generally speaking, I'm optimistic that we're moving in the right direction on this. It's good optimism. It's good to hear some optimism. Mm -hmm. I will just, as an observation, you're connecting a couple of, of, of your previous answers. What strikes me is something different this time in, in the voices I'm hearing. The, I feel like the American, American viewers are starting to understand the concept of structural violence and structural inequities, right? They've had a, a, a sort of a crash course in that via the Trump administration and BLM. And now we have you know, voices on TV, whether it's Nora Arakat, who has always spoken you know, profoundly and, and very effectively, or someone like Mohammed Al-Kurd, who basically push back against the framing. It's they're not allowing the, the framing that is ahistorical or starts the chronology in a convenient place that's not accurate. They're actually challenging the framing in a way that I think might not have resonated five years ago, but today really does. Um, and I think like, like everyone has sort of moved along and I think it's, it, there's an, uh, an opening here for understanding. I do want to pick up on, you know, we're, we are in Washington, and I want to ask you about the Biden administration. You, you referenced the Trump administration before and its policies. One thing that was striking to me um, during the, the latest um, violence on the ground was the, the remarkable silence. Um, I, don't, I don't want to attribute 
words like, you know, feelings like apathy, but they were remarkable silence, whether we were talking about what was happening in Sheikh Jarrah and then on the Haram Sharif and then eventually more widely. And they can claim credit for the ceasefire all they want. The fact that they stayed silent for all that was really quite striking. Um, Can you offer some observations about both the Trump administration as it feeds into the Biden administration, both in terms of the opportunities the Biden administration had to differentiate itself or still has Mm -hmm. from what happened, but also, and disagree with me if you think I'm wrong, the extent to which the Biden administration is really missing the boat and understanding where the American grassroots um, Democratic voters, progressives are on this issue. No, I think that's right. And I think to look at it, you know, it's helpful to zoom out a little bit to say that American policy towards Palestine and Israel has been a problem long before Trump came along. There was always a fundamental contradiction uh, between the fact that American policy on paper, their positions were opposition to settlement expansion, a call for an end to the occupation and for respect for human rights. But in practice, the United States enabled Israel's violations of of the very policies that they claim to be against. Um, You know, American military funding for Israel went not only went unquestioned, but actually increased as Israel's violence against Palestinians in occupation entrenched. And American protection of Israeli policy at the United Nations, you know, the diplomatic cover they, they offered using the U.S. veto more than 40 times to shield Israel from international accountability. That's an obvious contradiction. Really, hypocrisy is the only word you can use to describe what, what we were doing throughout that entire period. And what was needed is an American president with the courage, an administration that is willing to take on the domestic political cost of ending that hypocrisy and matching our policy actions to our policy positions. Trump came along and resolved that hypocrisy in the wrong direction. He resolved it by changing American policy positions to endorse Israel's war on Palestinians so that it's not only merely enabling it, but full on participating in it. And Obviously, there were a lot of horrible things that happened under the Trump administration. I do not want to play them down. It was obviously a shift in a much worse direction when it comes to Palestinians. And given the extent of the awakening within the United States on what's happening in Palestine and Israel, and the fact that an overwhelming majority of Democrats today favor reducing American funding to Israel because of Israel's violation of Palestinian rights, what we needed is somebody in this moment to come and in the same way that they were capturing this progressive energy and this anti-Trump sentiment to reverse course on so many domestic policies, we needed somebody with the boldness to fully resolve that contradiction between American policy positions and rhetoric that pre-existed in the correct direction this time. And all Biden did is restore the hypocrisy that existed before Trump. So again, I don't want to dismiss all of it. Some of it was really important. For example, restoring aid to the UN agency that helps Palestinian refugees survive, UNRWA, is a really meaningful and important action because really vulnerable people depend on that funding. And so I don't want to dismiss the significance of the Biden administration doing the right thing on something like that. But ultimately, there is still something particularly bizarre about the fact that the US is funding oppression that keeps Palestinian refugees refugees, and then turns around and offers less money for these refugees to help them survive. It seems to make a lot more sense rather than fund the violence and then the aid to the victims is to just stop funding the violence in the first place. You know, it's something that many Palestinians have said and keep saying, Palestinians are not victims of some natural disaster who are in need of charity. They are victims of oppression and they are in need of their freedom. And the best thing the United States can do is simply end support for the oppression that they live under. And certainly with with Gaza, it was, you know, one can imagine that it would have been worse under Trump, 
is that instead of calling for restraint or de-escalation or whatever subtle pressure they were pushing for behind the scenes, that Trump would have just been fully on board with whatever Israel decided to do. But honestly, subtle opposition to war crimes is not good enough. We need something a little bit bolder. This moment calls for something more, and it calls for an administration that's willing to say, you will not get another penny, you will not get another bomb, you will not get another fighter jet, as long as you continue carrying out war crimes and entrenching your occupation. It's simply not an acceptable situation. And even though it's very promising that we have so many more people in Congress who are willing to, you know, walk the walk and talk the talk at this point, insisting that the Biden administration has to hold Israel accountable, I don't think the administration is anywhere near where it needs to be in terms of responding to that public shift. And they are very much behind the times right now. And it's, they need to be not just a little bit stronger. What's frustrating, I will say, watching this as someone who is, you know, obsessively watches Congress and, and the administration, you know, year after year, is they're sort of also in the same trap that the Obama administration was in, which is that their opponents on the Republican side are painting them as anti-Israel, anti-Semitic for not doing the right thing, um, from a, for not being far enough right wing when they're, I mean, they're going to pay the same political price. They yeah. will pay the same political price for doing something meaningful, which they're not doing, as they're paying for doing something which is largely symbolic. Either way, they pay the price. One way might actually have a chance of ameliorating the situation yeah. somewhat. Um, and it seems like a really odd political um, calculation to make. All right, so we're running out of time. I want to ask you one last question. This is mm -hmm. almost purely selfish for my part. I am mm -hmm. interested. You, for years, have produced wonderful short videos um, for social media where you break down the facts about Israeli policies that violate the rights and dignity of Palestinians. These are on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter. They're terrific. From your experience with these videos and with the media in general, what have you learned that you can share with us about messaging on Palestine? And you know, what works? <laughs> what doesn't work? And, and how do you see the role of social, uh, social media in, in potentially changing or pushing legacy media to be better. And last thing, I'm, adding you, I'm piling things on, um, the social media censorship issue, which has mm -hmm. become really big in recent weeks. You know, can you offer some observations on that? It seems to me as an observer, I am appalled by the social media censorship of Palestinian voices. At the same time, by censoring social media, Palestinian voices on social media, we have got more attention to Palestinians and the problem of censorship, which already existed, than ever before. It's very exciting. Um, so if you can weigh in on that and anything else you want to add. Sure. Um, look, I think that the overwhelming majority of people everywhere have an instinctive desire to see equality and fairness everywhere. And that whenever they see a situation where somebody's being treated unfairly, there is the instinct to object to that. And so in that sense, I really think that the best messaging is the one that conveys the reality on the ground in the simplest ways possible. I'm not a big fan of big academic conversations about, you know, concepts and isms and, and everything else. I think if you simply conveyed the reality of what's happening in Palestine, which is that a people are being treated unfairly, their human rights are being violated, their children are being bombed, their lands are being taken from them, they're being thrown out of their homes. You know, when you think of a home, it's, not, it's more than a statistic. It's not just like, oh, X many Palestinians lost their homes. To really think of the fact that homes are a refuge for all of us, that we may face racism and, and troubles and everywhere we go, but you finally can come home and take a few minutes to yourself, where this is just a place where, you know, it's, it's your refuge, the balcony that you like sitting at, 
the children's album that you like to to check out when you're sitting at, on this chair or whatever childhood memories that most basic of refuges is being taken away from Palestinians on a regular basis. The homes that they've grown up in, they're being pushed out of and the homes are being given to somebody else simply because Palestinians are not the right ethnicity when it comes to an apartheid government that rules them. And when people understand that reality in the simplest ways possible, and when they understand that America is responsible for this, they are complicit, they are funding the very crimes that we are witnessing, I think every American will reach the only and obvious conclusion was that, which is that this has to change and this has to stop and we cannot continue being complicit in these crimes. So to the extent to which we can make that reality as simple as possible and convey human stories, I think that's where the point of emphasis should be. To me, it's a lot more important than debating, you know, terminology and big concepts and, and, and whatnot. And in terms of social media, I think it has been absolutely instrumental in democratizing the flow of information. Traditionally, it always flowed from the top down. Social media in principle made it so that everybody can be, um, can have their views expressed and, and reach an audience. And then of course, the cell phone technology and the fact that everybody has a camera on their phone and the people in Palestine were capturing what was happening to them. That gave the world a window into the injustice that Palestinians live under that they otherwise would not have. And that natural growth and awareness, I think absolutely is part of what impacted traditional media coverage of this as well, to say that this is a perspective that's out there and needs to be included. The censorship is extremely troubling to me because precisely that tool that democratizes the flow of information is once again, yet another space in which Palestinians are being excluded. And it's, it's really infuriating that on the political front, on the media front, and now on the social media front as well, that there is this targeting of Palestinians and their content on this. I can tell you, Anecdotally, so many of my posts that are Palestine focused, I've noticed they get a lot less traction than other posts. You know, this is something called shadow banning where certain posts just don't get um, as much traction or as many views. I've seen it with reports that the Institute for Middle East Understanding shares a lot of content on Palestine and a lot of people share their content and we receive a lot of content from other people. Just a note, I work at the Institute for Middle East Understanding for clarification, but I'm obviously not speaking on behalf of IMEU here. Um, but We've put out a call asking people to share whether their stories have been taken down. And certainly, sure enough, hundreds of people shared with us that their post about Palestine had been taken down. And you look at a you know institution as big and as influential as Facebook, and you find out that the board that determines what content is allowed on the platform and, and what's not includes an official who once worked in the Israeli government as a censor of Palestinian content. Obviously, that's an extremely troubling thing that people should be paying attention to and objecting to. These conversations are ongoing. We have a cultural moment right now also where there is significant concern when it comes to the issue of free speech. We have the cultural battle on college campuses and cancel culture and whatnot. And yet this tends to be, you know, all the free, free speech warriors who are objecting to cancel culture somehow keep managing to miss the fact that Palestinians are being canceled on a regular basis and including events that take place at mainstream institutions in which, you know, speakers who are advocates of Palestinian rights are disinvited, in which student votes in favor of a boycott campaign have their votes overturned by administrations. You have all of this happening and it's not getting the attention that it deserves. Obviously, I think part of the reason why the other side, you know, our opponents, our political opponents who, are, who serve as apologists for Israeli government policy are resorting to heavy handed tactics of censorship is precisely because they're beginning to lose the public debate. 
There was a time when they did not have to do this because they dominated the public debate. And at this point, as awareness grows, as public opinion shifts, there is an interest in shutting down this conversation, but sometimes it goes too far beyond just social media. You know, when you look at bills that try to make it punishable for people to engage in boycotts of Israel, um, you know, that awakens massive organizations like the ACLU to fight against them. And the ACLU is not interested in Palestine or Israel. They're a massive civil rights organization. And the fact that the overreach of the other side in trying to shut down free speech and trying to undermine people's constitutional rights is triggering this kind of reaction, I think, means that in the short term, we have our hands full with a very, very serious fight for our right to speak honestly about what's unfolding in Palestine and Israel, but also I think is a promising one of the fact that, you know, there's a quote that I don't think is actually Gandhi's, but is often attributed to him, that first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, and then they fight you, and then you win. And the fact that we're at the they fight you stage right now is a sign that we've made tremendous progress and that, you know, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Thanks. It also makes me think of something I've been saying to people for years as I've been tracking the, the anti-free speech legislation in U.S. states and whatnot, this, this effort to basically quash criticism of Israel and activism um, by individuals and companies and campuses. And what I've said to friends in various organizations that say, like, you know, for years, ACLU didn't want to do this is, you know, you may not care about Israel-Palestine, but Israel-Palestine cares about you. Mm -hmm. um, and it's and this issue is coming for your constitutional rights. So if you're not prepared to defend the rights of people who are active on Israel-Palestine and Palestinians, then you're not going to, then you're not defending your own rights. So be advised. Absolutely. All right. So I want to end it here. This is fantastic. And, and be warned, I'm going to ask you to come back to, to explore other angles here. But I want to thank you, Omar, for joining me today. And thanks for sharing all of your insights with the foundation and with our listeners. This has been a timely and very rich discussion. Um, I also want to thank our listeners for tuning in and to remind people to subscribe to the Occupied Thoughts podcast. We are adding timely new content every week. You can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud so you don't miss a thing. You can also listen to our podcast and find lots of other great resources on our website, www.fmap.org. I also want to plug Omar's work and you can find it, like you said, he works with the Institute for Middle East Understanding, which is a fantastic organization. You can check out their work at imeu.org. It's nice that your name is already, it's already, you know, just the letters. That's um, Omar also hosts another terrific podcast with his colleague, Deanna Butu, who is brilliant. Uh, you can find those episodes and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and on IMEU's website, which again is imeu.org. And with that, I'm Laura Friedman, President of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, signing off until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts. <laughs>